All right. Well, if you haven't been with us, we're in a series uh, in the book of Matthew for the season of Advent, and we're looking at the birth of Jesus through the lens of the Gospel Matthew. You see, there are four different Gospels or biographies of Jesus. Each one of them gives us a different perspective on the life of Jesus. Each one of them gives us a different angle on uh, Christmas. And so uh, this, this season, we're looking at Christmas through the lens of Matthew. And today, we're going to look at uh, some famous people in the story, the, the Magi here. In uh, chapter 2, they're on a search uh, to, to, to find the Messiah. And as I was looking at it this past week, um, I kept on coming back to a, one of my favorite songs uh, as a young person. You see, I, I'm a child of the 80s and early 90s. And uh, one of my favorite bands from that time period is a band by the name of U2. Anybody know that rock band? And uh, for me, man, their best album was the album Joshua Tree. And uh, one of my favorite songs from that album is a song called I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For. A famous song, iconic song, came out in 1987. I was 14 years old at the time, so do the math. Loved it. Uh, I still love it. I still sing it now and again, but I love the lyrics. They're so enduring. Uh, the, The song starts out like this. I have climbed the highest mountain. I have run through the fields only to be with you, only to be with you. I have run. I have crawled. I have scaled These city walls, these city walls, only to be with you. We sing it together, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Right? We love that song, don't we? Yes, uh, it's a song that resonates because it's a song that describes the human experience. It's a song all about searching. It's a song about a transcendent Longing that we all share as human beings. Uh, they interviewed Bono uh, one time and asked him about the lyrics of this song. And if you don't know, Bono is a Christian. And when he wrote the song, he said it's a spiritual song. And he said it, it resonates with us because he says it's about joy and longing. He said it's a song about sorrow and transcendence. He said it's a song that tells us that we're all searching. We're all looking for something. And it asks us a question. Have we found it yet? Have you found what you're looking for? Now, we all know what it's like to be on this search. Maybe some of us are are looking for a power and achievement. You know, this is what you're, as you stay at work late at the office, as you work those long hours, you are searching for achievement. You are searching for approval, maybe, from, from your dad. Maybe you never got it from him, but this is what you're looking for. Uh, some of us are, are looking for, for it in financial stability. You know, maybe you grew up in a, in a family where you always struggled financially, right? And so you grew up thinking, you know, there is one thing I know, I am going to be secure. I'm going to make enough money to feel safe. Some of us are looking for comfort. You know, you, you can envision it. You've got it in your mind right now. This is, this is your goal in life, you know, drinking a pina colada on the beach in Mexico. You know, the water's crystal clear blue. You can tell I've thought about this for a long time. You know, and this is what you're after in life. This is your main pursuit. Some of us are searching for romance. You know, you, you grew up, maybe you've seen one too many romantic comedies, and you're thinking, I just want to find the one, you know, the proverbial one that's going to, that's going to fulfill all of my longings and all of my dreams, and you're looking for that one person that will finally be the one that you've been looking for. All of us are searching. The song resonates because all of us are on 
this uh, journey where we have longings that we're seeking to be met. And so the wise men, what they do is they give us a glimpse into this universal longing. Uh, you see, the wise men tell us something about what it means to search. You see, the wise men are the original spiritual seekers. They're on a journey. They're following a star, and they're looking for something that they haven't found yet. You know, what's interesting uh, is that sociologists talk about something called stranger value. And stranger value is the value that an outsider brings. You know, foreigners, strangers, they bring an angle, they bring a perspective on us that we can't see. They're, it's a view from the outside. Uh, the outsider status that they have gives them a, a, the gift of insight, and they show us something that we oftentimes miss. And they're going to teach us something about what it means to seek Jesus and how it feels when we finally find what we're looking for. So let's look at their story uh, this morning. This is uh, Matthew 2, and we'll just jump into it, uh, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is the star, or where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. And stop there. And so we're introduced to the wise men. And who are these guys? And I, and I would wager that most of us, we think we know more about the story than we actually really do. We know the wise men, right? They're in the, they're in the manger scenes. Uh, you know, they're in our Christmas carols. You know, we've seen them. They're a, they're a very essential part of Christmas. And, you know, we've sung the song about them. We three kings of Orient are bearing gifts and so on. But what I want you to see is that we've, we've misunderstood uh, their identity. We don't really know who they are at all. Because, you see, first of all, they're not kings. There is nothing in the Christmas story that says these guys are royalty. It calls them magi. We'll learn what that means in a second. But these are not kings traveling from afar. Uh, the, the second thing I want you to see is there's not three of them. Right? There's nowhere that it tells, says in the story that there, are three, that there are three kings coming here. Now you say, well, wait a minute. They brought three gifts yeah, but I want to give three gifts to my kids. But that doesn't mean there's three of me, you know, last time I checked, right? So uh, I also want you to see that they're, 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 they don't belong in the manger scene. These guys don't show up to visit Jesus when he was born. How do we know that? Well, because when did the, sh the star show up? They didn't start following the star until Jesus was born. That means that, that when Jesus was, when he came into the world, they were hundreds of miles away. And what this means is that if you've got a manger scene that has the magi in it, here's what I want you to do. Go home today, take them out of the manger scene, and put them in another area of your house. Because that's where they were. They were far away when Jesus was born. So who are these guys? Who are the, the magi that we learn about in the passage? Well, uh, it, the, literally the Greek word that's used is the word mag, magos. And this uh, uh, is the singular form of magi. And essentially what it means is that they were wealthy, aristocratic, pagan sorcerers. Uh, they studied the stars. Think of them as astrologers. And uh, they believed that there was a symbiotic relationship, there's a magnetic relationship between heaven and earth. And they would study the stars because they thought that that helped them understand the future. And so therefore they were very uh, useful to pagan kings who wanted to know what was coming up next on the world stage. And so as you look at these guys, think of them as magicians. Uh, these were astrologers writing the horoscope column for the Babylonian Gazette. Uh, these were palm readers. That's how I want you to think about them. Uh, sought out to tell people about their future. These were fortune tellers. 
And really, they, they belong more in a Harry Potter novel than they do in the Christmas story. And I want you to see how shocking it would have been for Matthew's readers to see them here. They didn't belong at all. You see, Matthew was written to a Jewish audience. And all the way through uh, the, the Jewish scriptures, uh, we are, they're told over and over again to stay away from sorcery. Uh, these uh, sorcerers were always mentioned in a polemical light and a negative light uh, throughout the Old Testament, and yet Matthew has them here right in the middle of the Christmas story. Why are they here? What is the point? Why does Matthew have the Magi show up here on Christmas morning? What they show us is that the, the longing for a Messiah is a universal longing. Right? The longing for a Messiah is not just a it's not just a Jewish longing or a religious longing or a national longing. The longing for a Messiah is a human longing. Matthew wants us to see that all people, regardless of ethnicity or nationality or religious affiliation or no matter what gender, no matter who you are, all human beings have a longing for the Messiah. In other words, Matthew wants to see that all of us, when we look out on the world, we see that something's not right. We see that the world is broken. Things are not the way that they're supposed to be. We look out and we see injustice. And we, and we see the, the poor being taken advantage of by the rich. And we see things that are just not working. And all of us have a longing for a world made right. All of us want to see righteousness roll down like a waterfall. All of us want to see equality. This is a longing for a world set to rights. And it's universal no matter who you are. Maybe you felt it. Uh, N.T. Wright puts it this way, all people know in cooler moments that this strange thing we call justice, this longing for things to be put right, remains to be one of the greatest human goals and dreams. Christians believe that this is so because all humans have heard deep within themselves the echo of a voice which calls us to live like that. And they believe that in Jesus, that voice became human and did what had to be done in order to bring it about. N.T. Wright is saying is if, if you listen to that echo of a voice, you know, if you look at the world long enough, you're, you will find yourself in yourself a longing for the world to be made right. This is a universal longing for the Messiah. And this is what set the, the Magi on their journey. And maybe they, they started their journey not, not just because they were looking out, but maybe they looked within themselves and they were thinking, there's got to be something more. You see, these were wealthy men. They had position, they had power, um, they had a place in, in Babylonian society, and yet that wasn't enough. They still were yearning for something more to satiate their deep human needs. Uh, C.S. Lewis puts it this way, most people, if they've really learned to look in their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. He's saying there's a longing. If you're quiet enough to listen to your own heart, you will find in there a yearning for something more. That money or power or sex, romance, nothing in this world can satisfy it. This is a, a longing for the Messiah. And it sets the Magi out on their journey. And what's interesting is that every once in a while, you'll hear somebody famous give voice to this sense of longing and discontentment. Last week, I was uh, on my, my guest uh, bed 
bedroom bed with all of my boys. We're sitting in front of a computer watching uh, a surfing contest. Probably a little too much, but I used to love surfing. And so uh, I still watch these contests, and I was watching a contest with all of my boys, teaching them to love surfing. And uh, we were watching this thing at the Bonsai Pipeline. It's a surf contest in Hawaii. And we were watching my favorite surfer, Kelly Slater. Love Kelly Slater because he's 47 years old. He's an old guy, and he's still at the top of his game. He is so good, and, and, you know, he loses too much for how good he is. But this one contest, we were watching it last week, Kelly Slater took off on a perfect wave, and he pulled into this perfect tube, and he was in there for so long, and he came out, and he got a perfect 10. And at that moment, I jumped out of bed, and all of me and my boys, we were giving each other high fives, and maybe some of you have felt like this if you've ever been into sports. And you, you give each other high fives in that moment. Why do you do that? It wasn't you who did anything good. But you see, you're entering into their experience. And this is what we were doing with Kelly Slater, just this amazing guy. But uh, there was an interview with him just a couple weeks ago where he was reflecting on his success as a pro surfer. And there's this very vulnerable moment where he says this. He says, you know, sometimes I wake up and feel totally alone in this world, which probably sounds strange to most people. And then he added, I think this sometimes happens to people who have had a great deal of success in their lives. Kelly Slater is giving voice to this, this longing, this, this thing that, that he's still looking for, even though he has everything. And lots of people who have had success in this world, are, are, they, they begin a journey, sort of a spiritual search, because there's a, a longing that's not being met. And so, N.T. Wright and C.S. Lewis and Kelly Slater are talking about the journey of the Magi, looking for meaning. And maybe you're on that journey here this morning. Let's see where the journey takes them. So this is verse 3. It says, uh, When Herod the king heard that he was... Uh, when Herod the king heard that this, he was troubled when he heard that they were looking for a king. And all Jerusalem with them. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it was written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring word to me, that I may come and worship him. Stop there. Their journey leads them to, to Jerusalem. And this is uh, where it should have led him, because if you're looking for royalty, you go to the capital city. Jerusalem was the capital city of Israel. It's where the palace was. You know, if you're looking for uh, leaders in our country, you go to Washington, and they go to the temple and the palace in Jerusalem. And when they get there, they meet a, a king by the name of Herod. Now, we're going to learn uh, way more about King Herod next week, but here's what I want you to know uh, just for this story. Uh, Herod was the current king of Israel, and he was a man who was absolutely uh, terrifying and violent. Uh, even for that ancient cult cultures, the standards of that time, he was an unusually violent ruler. He was power-hungry, and he was paranoid of, of anybody who was out to steal any. In any of his power. 
In fact, uh, Herod was known for killing members of his own family. Uh, he killed his favorite wife, Miriam, because he was paranoid that she wanted to put her, th her son on the throne. He killed several members, members of the royal court. He, he killed uh, several um, other members of his extended family, which led one historian to say it was safer to be one of Herod's dogs than it was to be <laughs> part of his family. Just extremely violent. And so when he hears these uh, wise men coming to Jerusalem looking for the king of the Jews, he spits out his morning coffee. He just is like, oh my gosh, what is going on? Who is that who's a threat to my power? And so he summons the, uh, the uh, scribes and the, and the, um, the uh, religious teachers, uh, the religious leader that day, and he says, do you know anything about the Messiah? Where is he to be born? And they say, oh, that's easy. One of the minor prophets says that he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And so Herod goes back to the wise men and says, oh, you're looking for this king? I want to find him too. Could, what, could you go diligently seek, seek him and look for him? And when you find him, bring him back because I want to worship him too. Now, those of us who know the story know that, that Herod has no intention of worshiping Jesus. He wants to find Jesus because he wants to kill him. Why is that? It's because he believes Jesus is a threat to his power. And guess what? Jesus is a threat to his power. Herod teaches us something about this idea that everybody worships. What's interesting is Herod says he, he wants to worship Jesus. He really doesn't want to worship Jesus, but Herod does worship something. Can anybody guess what Herod's object of worship is? I'd say it's power. Because everybody worships. Whether you're religious or not, whether you would consider yourself a Christian or, or somebody who's uh, not really a follower of God at all, everybody worships because to worship means that you put something above everything else in your life. Everybody has a main object of pursuit. Everybody has something in their life that they've put at the top. And what is it for you? You see, Herod was a worshiper here. He was a worship of power and authority. There's a famous Kenyan address, or address at Kenyan College by a, an author uh, who, uh, whose name is David Foster Wallace. And in this address, it's famous because he's an atheist, he's not a believer at all, and yet in this address, he set, makes a statement, he says, everybody worships. There is no such thing as not worshiping. And he says, the, the main reason to worship God as opposed to some other, uh, other thing is that anything else you worship will eat you alive, he says. And he goes on and he says, if you worship money and things, if they're what you tap real meaning in life out of, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, he says, and you will feel weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to keep that fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. What he's saying is that everybody worships, and he says that there is a counterfeit object of worship. You see, everybody's looking for a Messiah, but sometimes we make the wrong thing the Messiah, whether that's money you know, you, you want more, more uh, you know, wealth and you want to be in a better neighborhood. What David Foster Wallace says is you make that your main object of pursuit, it will eat you alive. You'll never have enough. 
you make romantic love. Oh, finding the one, finding that one beauty that I've been looking for all of my life. He says, you will find the one, and you will find that the one doesn't satisfy you, doesn't complete you. A la Jerry Maguire, if you know that movie. Anything else you make your main object of pursuit will leave you empty. Because we are infinite beings. We have an infinite void in our hearts. Human beings are, are looking for a Messiah, and, and anything else that you put in that void is going to leave you empty and will ultimately eat you alive. You will never have enough. You will never be satiated. You will never be satisfied if you make something, anything in this world, your main object of pursuit. And so Herod, he looks at the wise men and he says, oh, why don't you go to, why don't you go, he says in verse six, and seek diligently for Jesus. Seek diligently for the child. That's good advice, isn't it? He says, look for Jesus. He should have taken his own advice. He should have realized that power wasn't gonna do it for him. He was, he was telling them to go on the only search that would satisfy. Now let's go on. So he tells them uh, to go look for Jesus, and after listening to the king, this is verse 9, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen, when it rose before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary and his mother, and they fell down and they worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream, they returned to, not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. And so the wise men go all the way to uh, Bethlehem, and there uh, in the house, they finally find the baby Jesus. And when they set eyes on the child, their search is over, because they finally have found what they've been looking for all of their lives. And so they meet Jesus, and the first thing they do is it says they worship him. And they throw gifts at his feet. What gifts did they throw? They, they threw a gold, a frankincense, and myrrh. And you say, well, wow, essential oils. That's interesting. You know, I guess that's a pretty good gift. I've, I've used it before. They are wonderful things. But in the ancient world, these were the most valuable things that a person could possess. Gold, obviously. But also these spices. Th these were things that that people sought after as, as objects of ultimate value. And what they're saying is that in Jesus Christ, we found somebody that is more valuable than anything in this world. Here we found something that is more valuable than power, more valuable than romance, more valuable than a pina colada on the beach in front of that crystal blue, <laughs> blue water. I know, I know. In Jesus Christ, they found something that every human heart is looking for. When they saw him, they worshiped him. And I want you to see that after they worshiped him, it says that they rejoiced with exceeding joy. Don't you love that little phrase? It's like adjectives piled up on each other. It wasn't just joy. They were rejoicing with exceeding joy. What they were saying is that now we have finally found it. Now we've, we, we're finally at rest. We're finally home. We finally are satiated. We've been looking for joy all of our lives, and in Jesus, we found it. What do we learn from the Magi? What do they teach us? They teach us that Jesus Christ is the only search that satisfies. We all are searching for all sorts of things. 
our hearts are a bundle of longings, all sorts of things we desire. But this story, these magi, they tell us that Jesus Christ is the only search that will satisfy your soul. There's an old story, um, classic novel called The Great Gatsby. Anybody read it? Um, Gatsby, some of you read it for school probably, but in the novel, it's this wealthy man. Is he, he's got everything, and he's, he's kind of just on a search for that next thing that's going to kind of complete his package. He's got money. He's got a great mansion by the ocean, and he's got, he's got everything, but he still feels unhappy. And so he fixes his gaze on a married woman named Daisy. And Daisy is his light. Da- Daisy is the star that he begins to follow. She's what he needs if he's going to be happy. She's beautiful, and she's, she's charismatic. She has it all, and this is, the, this is what he wants. And then the novel, he goes out on his dock every night. He lives on the ocean, and he looks acro- across the sta- sound, and he sees her house. And her house has this dock, and on the end of a dock is a green light. And that, that green light represents what's going to finally f- satisfy him. It, it represents Daisy. It represents this thing, this object that if he only has, it will make it, everything worth it. Well, if you know the story, he finally gets Daisy. And when he gets her, it's not enough. And there's this very palpable line at the end of that novel where it says this. When he gets Daisy, it says, uh, Gatsby, it says, possibly it occurred to him, Gatsby that is, that the colossal significance in that green light has now vanished forever. And now it was again a green light on a dock. His count of enchanted objects had diminished by one. What the novel is saying is that Gatsby was on a false pursuit. He was looking for the wrong Messiah. And when he finally got her, it didn't satisfy him. And so here's the question this morning. What what pursuit are you on? What are you looking for? And is that thing going to satisfy your soul? Because the story of the Magi tells us that Jesus is the only search that satisfies. Now, as we near the end here, there's there's one little piece of the story that I think is actually more interesting and maybe even more odd than than the Magi, these magicians finding, you know, looking for Jesus. And that's the the people in the story that that are not looking at all. You notice that? Everybody's looking, right? The Magi are looking for Jesus and... The uh, Herod even is looking for Jesus because he wants to kill him, but there's one group of people in the story that are not looking. Anybody notice who they were? Class? The religious people. And what's so funny about them is they know exactly where the Messiah is to be born. They know the scripture. They know, oh yeah, he's going to be in Bethlehem. Yeah, everybody knows that, but here's the weird thing. They don't go. And the ironic thing about the story is these magi, these magicians from hundreds of miles away are searching for Jesus. People that shouldn't be searching for him are looking for him. And the people in the story that should be looking for him won't even go five miles. That's how far Jerusalem is from Bethlehem. They won't even go five miles to find him. We learn that it's very possible to be in church and yet to be on the wrong search. It's very possible to say, oh yeah, I, 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 yeah, Jesus, he's the one I worship, he's the one I'm after. But really at the end of the day, what you're really after is something that's never gonna satisfy you. Maybe it's power, maybe it's romance, maybe it's money. It's possible to be in church 
and yet to be on the wrong search. We're still following things that aren't going to satisfy us. And it's funny, as a pastor, I was walking down Main Street the other day, and I was just kind of asking myself the question that I'd really want you to ask yourselves this morning. What am I really after in life? Right, and I'm a pastor, you know, I should, the answer to that question should be Jesus for me. But honestly, sometimes I get on a search for career success. What I most care about is preaching an amazing sermon. Some of you are saying, keep on going on that search, Brent. <laughs> man, what, what I really want is to have everybody look at me and just say, man, that guy's amazing. You know, what I really want is, is not really Jesus. Ultimately, it's, it's something else. And I think what this story tells us is that even if I preach the greatest sermon that any of y'all had ever heard, Boy, I'd love that, but it wouldn't be enough. Jesus is the only search that will satisfy your soul. I love the, the story of the Magi because they say, you know, no matter who you are, you know, even if you're a pagan, you know, sorcerer, you know, looking at tarot cards, it says it doesn't matter who you are, anybody who genuinely searches for the Messiah will find him. And God will use any means to bring you to himself. What I love about the story is that before the, the wise men ever started following the star, before they ever started looking for Jesus, Jesus was always already on a search for them. And why is the Messiah born in a manger? He is God go, coming down into this earth on a mission to find us. Who do you think sent them that star? It doesn't matter who you are or what you're into. If you will genuinely pray the prayer, God, where are you? I want to know you. The Bible says if we seek him, we will find him, and when we find him, we find rest, our greatest joy, and what it means to be home. So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the wise men, which tell us about just the reality of the search we're all on. Everybody worships, everybody is on a quest to find that one thing. And Lord, I pray that you would give us the wisdom as your people to make you our main object of pursuit. Lord, you are the only one that will satisfy us. Nothing finite in this world can satisfy the infinite void in our hearts. And so again, Lord, we pray that you'd give us the wisdom, Lord, to seek you, and I pray that in seeking you, we, we would find you. This morning, God, as we take communion, I pray that we would draw from your life, that you would satiate our deepest needs. God, that we would find joy, that in this place, here this morning, as we, as we take communion, God, that we would find rest, that we would rejoice with exceeding joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.